people, and it is the highlight of our year. It's not every single year that we get to be here and have a chance to speak to you, but just about every year. And uh, this particular time, this Revived uh, 16, is an exciting time for us to have a chance to be at home. And I, is it okay? I, I just feel like I'm at home. Uh, I, I, I thank you so much for your generosity and your giving and all the many years that you have helped us to do what God's called us to do. And uh, I, I just have to tell you, I, I work with pastors all over the world, but I believe that we've got the greatest right here in this church. How many believe that? Amen. The sincerity, uh, the, the dedication, the commitment, the prayer, the way that Pastor Brown prays and the way he leads, the Bible teaching, all these things create an amazing package that is unique today. And this church is so blessed to have Lee and Sherry Brown as their pastors. Amen. Let's give them another great hand. We love them so much. And uh, we could turn this into a memorial service for he and I, but we don't want to do that. But uh, how many believe God could do something in your life today that would change everything forever? Amen. Amen. How many believe he has the power to do that? <laughs> Amen. And so uh, I'm excited to be here. I do have a word on my heart that I believe the Lord has given me for you. And so I want you to take your Bible in your hands and open it with me to the book of Matthew chapter number 24. And I want to uh, talk with you today as we kick off this meeting around a message that I have entitled The Landfill Symphony. The Landfill Symphony. And we're going to read a few verses of Scripture together and just see where this goes. And I have some notes, but how many know for a preacher that notes are just kind of suggestions, not necessarily uh, mandates. And so I'll stay there as long as it feels like I should and we'll see where the Lord takes us. Stand with me if you will. Delighted to have my wonderful wife with me who is always my companion and best friend. And uh, she's not always with me on the road, but she's always with me in heart. And it's a special joy to have you today, hon, and get to be in service with you today. Now, Jesus is speaking. Uh, this is a very controversial passage uh, of Scripture. It can be interpreted any number of ways. And my text today is not about the direct interpretation as it relates to eschatology. But it is about a word that the Lord embeds in this passage that I think is a good reminder for us today. Uh, let's begin reading now in verse number 3 of chapter 24. Now as he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, Tell us when will these things be and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Jesus answered and said to them, Take heed that no one deceives you. That means there's going to be lots and lots of opinions and lots and lots of people who have different ideas about these events and how they unfold. And that is really not the essence of what Jesus is saying here. But he gives us a bit of an ominous series of things that are going to be happening. For many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ and deceive many. History says over the last 2,000 years or more actually, over 1,000 people have claimed to be the Messiah who have come on the scene, over a 1,000 says, and you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not troubled. What an amazing statement. See that you are not troubled. For all these things must come to pass, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines, pestilence, and earthquakes in various places. All these things are the beginning of sorrows. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and kill you, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will be offended, will betray one another, and will hate one another. Then many false prophets will arise and deceive many. And because lawlessness, if you have a highlighter, you might highlight, lawlessness will abound. The love of many will grow cold. But he who endures to the end shall be saved. That that series of ominous statements was certainly true in Jesus' day and certainly could be applied to those that would live in the next years uh, that would unfold after Jesus' ascension, culminating with the destruction of the temple in AD 70. But as I read this, I have to tell you, it's like so much of the other scriptures that we read. There is both an 
contemporary setting in which it can be interpreted. But how many know it speaks to us today? I don't know that I could read a passage of Scripture to you that would be more apropos to the events that are unfolding before our eyes today. As certainly as they were in Jesus' day. But notice what Jesus says, and this is the real verse that I want to draw your attention to. And this gospel, did you know gospel means good news? Now amidst all these ominous statements and predictions, I'm so thankful today that Jesus finished it by saying, I've got good news for you. (laughs) But this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world as a witness to all nations, and then the end will come. Let's pray together. Lord, I thank you for this wonderful group of people and the anointing that's in this room, Lord. I know that your word is anointed. I thank you, Lord, to have the opportunity today to stand before them. And it's humbling for me, Lord, because these many years we've watched this church evolve and grow. And, Lord, they are our family. And I just pray today, Lord, as we talk about the landfill symphony, God, that you would open our hearts to receive. Lord, let every filter be opened. Let every eye be tuned and every ear tuned into the frequency of heaven. And Lord, I know my limitations, but God, I'm well acquainted with your abilities. And I ask that by your abilities, you will do in this moment of time that we have what only you can do. In Jesus' mighty name, amen. High five somebody and tell them, get ready for the word of the Lord. We've had a, a really good time. And so the rabbit trails begin. Uh... We've had a really good time the last few weeks. Last week we were with Drew and his family, our son and uh, his wife and our grandchildren. And he pastors in Lomita, Texas. It's amazing. I I mean, many of you know Drew. And does it shock you as much as it does me that he's pastoring a great church? Matter of fact, today he's preaching in Fort Worth in a church in the multiplied hundreds, preaching multiple services today. And just amazing what God's doing. And we're so excited about it. But Drew and Diana have given us three grandchildren. How many grandparents know that grandkids were God's better idea? Amen. He got it right the second time, right? I mean, that's, there's nothing in the world better than grandkids. And we were, of course, we had church on Sunday, had a great time. And then there was a meeting. Uh, we have a church plant that's launching in the Austin area. And so Drew and a team from the church were going to celebrate and be part of a, uh, a what we call a preview service in Austin. And so we bowed out of that. We've been on sabbatical for the last four weeks or so, the last month or so, Kath and I have. So this is the first time to be back in the pulpit in maybe five weeks or so for me. And so we bowed out of that uh, event and they went and we took the grandkids to see The Secret Lives of Pets. I don't know whether you've seen that ridiculous movie, but it's pretty funny. And so uh, they did really good. So we have Noah, who's seven, and then we have Jonah, who is uh, five or about to be five, and then Judah. And Judah's our baby. He's about two or two and a half, maybe it'll be three, I guess, in September. And uh, Judah is the most peaceful, calm, laid-back child. And the sweet. anybody ever been around sweet babies? I mean, this guy, this little guy, is. Uh, there was a picture I posted on Facebook while we were there where he just, by his own choice, got me around the neck and squeezed me so tight. It, I, it was amazing. And he whispered in my ear, he's two, a little over two and a half, I love you. Oh, my God. It's like puddle, puddle, cry, cry. Just when all the emotions started. But he has had to develop a little bit of an edge because he's got a five-year-old big brother that is a Tasmanian devil. And, and then his older uh, brother is seven. And, you know, he's got to learn to defend himself. And so uh, this has really very little to do with my message, but it was so funny. We were riding back from the movie. <laughs> over in, in uh, Copper, Copper's Cove, I think is the name of the little town. And we were coming back from the movie on the way back, and the kids were talking about how they missed us, which is great. It's like, we love to hear that. Well, tell us more. You know, how bad do you miss us? And Noah said, well, I'll tell you how bad I miss you. I, he said, when I get big, when I grow up, I'm going to move to Searcy because it's, he, that's, they were over at Faith Assembly for a while. And he said, I, I want to move to Searcy, and we'll be close to you. And Jonah piped in. He said, He's the five-year-old. He said, when I grow up, he said, I want to move to Louisiana. And what that had to do with anything. But Jude immediately popped up and he said, when I grow up, I want to punch somebody. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, 
I had to just, we just, Kath and I just cackled for a minute because I had this sweet little baby. This sweet, sweet little guy would come such a thing that his aspiration in life was to grow up and get big enough to punch somebody. <laughs> when we laughed, he said, yeah, Jonah in the face. <laughs> then I understood it, of course, if you know Jonah. I don't know whether any of you have ever felt that way. No matter how sweet you are, it seems like there are moments in life when you look at the situation around you that you think, I'd like to just get big enough to punch somebody. This political season, how many have ever felt that way? It's like, I don't know what else I'm going to do in life, but I'd just like to punch somebody. Anybody tired of bad news? Whatever happened to the feel-good stories that we used to see on the news, the human interest stuff? And here's Jesus delivering what some might consider to be bad news. Ominous predictions. And his words ring as true today as they did in the day in which he lived. In fact, if you study history, and I'm a bit of a student of history, you'll find out that these kinds of things Jesus described have been the condition of humanity since the very beginning. Since Adam and Eve's fall and Abel and Cain's event, it seems as if to one degree or another these kinds of things have been going on. Nation rising against nation, wars and rumors of wars, offended people. Have anybody ever seen a time? Now, I do believe we are in an acceleration of that. It seems like I've never seen a time in history that there's more mad folk. Everybody's got a grievance. Everybody's upset. What about persecution? I mean, global persecution of Christians is at an unprecedented level. But Jesus told us these things would happen. And he said in the midst of them, don't lose hope. Don't be so uh, uh, overtly disturbed by that. And notice how he ends all these terrible predictions. But he says, I've got good news for you. I believe that that became the template for the church from the day of ascension. And it remains the mandate of the church today. That no matter what's going on, no matter who's in power, no matter who's in the White House, no matter who's running Wall Street, no matter what's going on in Hollywood, the mandate of the church is the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And this good news shall be preached, hallelujah, to all nations before the end comes. Our job is not to always know exactly how it's going to happen and what's going to happen. Our job is to fill our mouths with the good news of what Jesus has done in our lives. And I have to tell you that we serve a God who can take the worst situations in the world and make good stuff come out of them. That's really the story of the gospel, isn't it? I mean, isn't that the theme of the gospel? The story of the gospel is the story of hope. It's good news. It's the story of restoration and renovation. The gospel is illustrated countless times in countless stories throughout all of the Bible, certainly beginning in the Old... Did you know the gospel is in the Old Testament as well as the New Testament? All over the Bible, the story, the throbbing theme of God's heart for humanity is revealed in the Scripture, Old Testament and New Testament, but just a few in the New Testament. What about the prodigal son? What a great story of redemption that is. This son who selfishly took his inheritance early and then lost it all living the high life, comes home to a father who should have punished him but instead welcomed him and made him a favored son again. How many prodigals have we had in the room today that you weren't always the little saint church mouse that you are today? Some of you, it would have blown your friend's mind five years ago if they knew you were sitting in this service today. But look where you are. That is the message of the gospel. And this gospel shall be preached. Hallelujah. There was a little black sheep that ran away from the fold. The Bible tells us about it. Became lost and then was found by the shepherd who left the 90 and 9 and searched for that lost one until he found it. It's the story of the Bible, ladies and gentlemen. And circumstance and situations don't change it. There was a Samaritan woman who was religiously deceived and morally bankrupt and socially ostracized. And she discovers her destiny in a gospel message delivered by the gospel himself. Through the message of the gospel, lepers were cleansed and sick and blind people were found, healed, and made whole again. Demon-possessed people were set free, being restored and given hope, being born again, as the scripture calls it. Each in their own way, given life again, right in the middle of the most negative, desolate, deplorable situations that life can produce. 
I'm talking about the gospels. Anybody in the room with me this morning? The gospel of Jesus Christ was first presented, listen, not in the lofty lecture halls of the elite thinkers and philosophers of the Greco-Roman world, but in the refuse dumps of humanity. It wasn't first presented in the ivory towers of academia. It was first presented in the gutters of life. Place filled with human slavery, racial bigotry, sexual depravity of every manner, economic poverty, unfair taxation, corrupt politics, crooked religion. That was the milieu and the incubation of the story of the gospel when Jesus came. That was the world of the first century. Yet the good news of Jesus Christ and the sacred mission of the church penetrated the culture and touched the world and turned it upside down in a single generation. It didn't happen through the elites of society or the superdelegates of a political movement. It was grassroots all the way. It's how God works. Rich and poor, educated and unlearned, religious and unaffiliated... It became irresistible and unstoppable because of not the people that shared it, but the power that was behind it. It was the Holy Spirit that carried it on every word and every act in the lives of people whose lives had been radically changed by its message. And Jesus said, after describing the world in which we lived, and this good news shall be preached in all the nations before the end will come. And what kinds of people carried that good news? I mean, it was a motley crew. Can I get an amen for that? And I'm not talking about a rock band. Fishermen, professional fishermen, listen, you hang around, it's they, that's, you're talking about a motley crew, they can be a, at least they're smelly. Some amateur fishermen I know are pretty smelly too after they, tax collectors, Nationalist fanatics, prostitutes, business people, priests. All this proving that a depraved world is no match for a glorified Christ demonstrated in the lives of the redeemed. God can make the greatest things out of the worst situations. Watch this. Bueno, entonces tiene que atender. kids in Paraguay actually made all of the instruments out of trash. Look at this. That's a fork, people. Let gifted music shine through tonight on that stage. video clip is a story that captured my imagination a few months ago as I was reading about the uh, children that live among the dump 
in, in uh, Keturah, Paraguay. It's interesting because there's about 2,500 families that make their home among the dump there in that third world country. I haven't visited this particular one, but I have uh, dumps in Juarez, Mexico, and Managua, Managua, Nicaragua. If there is a hell on earth, and a picture was recorded of it somewhere, it would be one of these landfills where people literally make their living sifting through the trash. They're trash pickers, but not like you see on television where they're going through some sort of antique store. These people literally live among the dump. This particular landfill is a suburb, village on the outside of Ascension, Paraguay. About 2,000 tons of trash are delivered there every single day. And there were a couple of people who lived there, uh, uh, an environmental engineer, as a matter of fact, the man that you saw that was working with the students is an environmental engineer. And he partnered up with someone who is a professional recycler that works in that dump as well. And they desired to bring some culture to the children who are living among the dump there and they wanted to teach the music lessons both of them had music musical backgrounds the problem is they didn't have instruments and so the only option they knew was to try to create instruments out of the trash that was there and so they brought some musicians some craftsmen in and they began to make all kinds of instruments together they they essentially made drums and you notice they had a a, a x-ray Thing that they held up and that became the pad for a drum and they made uh, violins and cellos and saxophones and trumpets and I don't know how they got all that stuff to tune but they began to tune them the children began to learn to play and literally formed a philharmonic orchestra there in the landfill that now has been on a world tour how many believe they sounded pretty good They sounded pretty good, made national news the culture took great notice of people who made music out of trash As I thought about this story and was amazed by the power of hope to overcome every challenge it faces, a hope that is based in Jesus Christ, I concluded that all of us are from the dumps of life. We are all children of the dump. The story of the gospel is that God has a vision to make beautiful music out of your life. No matter what you've been through today, no matter what you've done or what's been done to you, the good news of the gospel is God can take the trash of your life and make something beautiful out of it. Hallelujah. It's good news. It's what the gospel has always been about. Perhaps there's a story in the scripture that illustrates this as good as any I could describe to you. And I won't send you there because it's a lengthy passage, but you can make a note. It's recorded in Joshua chapter number 2, and it's the story of a lady named Rahab. Rahab is described, her, her, she's mentioned, Rahab is, eight times in the scripture. Five times that it mentions her, the label harlot is used to describe her including Hebrews chapter 11, where she's being bragged on. It's a label that she had earned, no doubt. You have to really think about where Rahab came from. Is everybody okay? You in the room with me? First, Rahab came from bad folk. She came from the proverbial wrong side of the tracks. She was a Canaanite. These people were bad to the bone. They were part of the tribes of Canaan that the scripture generally refers to as the Amorites. They were some of the worst of the worst. And they had lived in this region for about 800 years practicing their debauchery. For eight centuries, they had cultivated a culture of degradation. They practiced witchcraft and idolatry. Their idolatrous practices included burning children alive as human sacrifices and debased sexual orgies of every sort as part of their worship. 800 years of rank evil, they had exploited the most vulnerable of their society. They placed a high premium on using virgins in their cult practices and cult prostitution was a cornerstone of their religious practices. She was one of them. In fact, she made her living in the sex industry of that day and was most likely connected to their religious system, could have even been a priestess. Because in some of those Canaanite religions, uh, this was a high premium. She was a tough woman. Somebody say she was a tough woman. There was a few of you that said it. How about a few more? 
She had to be. You don't survive long in her job unless you are. Wonder how she wound up in this position. You know, who knows? In that culture, she probably had a thousand reasons. Her mom, her dad, being in the wrong place at the wrong time. Did you know sex trafficking is on the rise in America and has been around the world? Often women, young girls, and, and boys for that matter, are cast into a lifestyle that they didn't choose by simply being at the wrong place at the wrong time. Whatever the case may have been, maybe she was part of simply this cult that was so common in that region. You fill in the blank, but she was probably past caring whose fault her mixed up life was. Blame games only take you so far. I guess the question comes to mind, how do any of us wind up in the garbage dumps of life? Everyone in this room has a story. We could look and if we're honest, and if there's some honest Christians in the room, the truth is we all have come from some sort of brokenness. I was raised by a pastor. My dad and mom pastored 50 years and my granddad 60 before him. But there was still a moment that I had to decide to serve Jesus and I had to realize that you can have religious sin just like you can have every other kind of sin. And it's as nasty in the eyes of God as any other. Can I get an amen? Everyone in this room has a story. Some perhaps a bit more dramatic than others, but we've all come from the same place, the trash heaps of humanity. We're all children of the dump. Rahab is mentioned, and we could talk a lot about her, but could you imagine the Bible talking about you and calling you a harlot five of the eight times you're mentioned? I think it's not to degrade her. I don't think that was the purpose. I think there's just no escaping the truth. It just was what it was. She'd been where she'd been. She'd done what she'd done. There you have it. It wasn't a pretty picture. She would have been the Old Testament equivalent of the Samaritan woman. Five marriages and a house full of children with different daddies and shacking up with a man who wouldn't even do her the courtesy of giving her his name. And I'm reminded that Jesus said, I must needs go through Samaria. How far would God go? to reach someone in the dump. <laughs> How much could he overlook before he would eventually say, well, that one's just too bad. Let me tell you today, let me make this bold declaration to you today that God makes music out of trash. I know that's not real Pentecostal in his like, but I do want to just shout. How many, how many know that God makes music out of, out of trash? Because he made it out of me. <laughs> I was religious trash, you know. That's kind of my, that was my milieu. That was my cultural reality. Some of you, it might have been something different, but the fact is a life without Jesus is trashy living no matter what, how you cut it or slice it. A life without surrender to Christ will always lead you back to the dumps you came from. The story of Rahab in Joshua chapter 2 involves the coming of spies where the spies were sent by Joshua. Now it's interesting because 38 years or so before Joshua had actually been part of a reconnaissance team that had gone into the promised land to spy out the land. The thing was is Moses made a tactical leadership mistake because they were representatives of each of the tribes. They were politicians. How many know that you don't get the same result and perspective out of sending 12 politicians that you do two commandos. The two men that Joshua sent, they weren't politically motivated. They were all about how to attack. It wasn't whether to go in and possess the promised land. It was how to best attack the enemy that was encamping in the land that God had promised his people. But through the coming of the spies from the camp of Israel, this woman becomes a believer. Now, often in those days, particularly in the area that we're talking about, the inns were often brothels or houses of prostitution, and they were built on the walls. And Joshua remembers those forebodingly thick walls that were there and all the reports that they brought back. And as it happens, when these men came, this was the local hotel where you stayed in. They weren't looking for pleasure. They were looking for reconnaissance. That's their mission in their mind is they were looking for reconnaissance and information. And no doubt when they arrive, there are other patrons that are there that hear them talking in maybe a foreign in dialect realize they ain't from around here 
So they report it to the king. Now, in those days, in Canaan particularly, documents have been discovered from the 12th and the 13th century B.C. that describes the governmental structure of Canaan. And most of these cities were city-states. They were like nations. And each one had a king or a ruler. And there was a lot of civil unrest. There was a lot of, of, of political discord. There was a lot of combat that went on between these cities. And you might say it this way, nation was rising against nation. And there were all kinds of pestilence and famine. There were things that were going on in Canaan during this time. And so when these young men came, they, they uh, spies that were there heard and they reported to the king that people from Israel had come there. How, how bad is it with Rahab? I mean, wow. One of the most deplorable situations recorded in Scripture, right in the middle of her deplorable lifestyle, she becomes a hero in the story. And she's running a brothel for Pete's sake. She's probably not just a prostitute. She's a pimp. Am I getting too plain for you? But she had heard about what God was doing across the river. She heard what God had done for Israel, probably since she was a little girl. Because it had been 38 years before that he had parted the Red Sea with his mighty wind and had set the nation of Israel really free. Because you see, they weren't free just because they left Egypt. They had to get away from Pharaoh. And God had to destroy Pharaoh before their very eyes or they never would have been free. They simply would have escaped. They were really set free when God took them through the Red Sea and drowned Pharaoh and his army in the waters. That made news, ladies and gentlemen. And Jericho being a front Frontier City, the oldest city recorded, actually it's one of the oldest cities in all of world history is Jericho. This place has stood for a long time. They heard the news of what God had done and then as they progressed toward through the wilderness, they had also overcome two pagan kings. News had spread. She'd heard it her whole life, but guess what? Now they're looking over the ramparts of Jericho to the plains of Moab right on the other side of the flooded Jordan River and they see two plus million people that are camped there that they've heard stories that legends were made of. Rahab describes the situation well and you can read it when you get home. But when she realizes these two men are from that camp, she says, I believe that your God is the God of heaven. Rahab became a believer. There was a change. It's like I've been doing this all my life. I've been messed up with all this depravity all my life. One of these days, I'm going to get my ticket out of this place and I'm going to take it without even second thought. And that's exactly what Rahab did. When, they, when she realized that they're literally staying in her house, she said, I believe that the God of heaven and earth is your God and I've heard and all the people have lost heart because of what God has done for you. It wasn't their technology. It wasn't all of their techniques. It wasn't their armament. It wasn't their power. It was their God that scared the people of Jericho and prepared this pagan woman for a change. traveling visitors who came to her house like a hundred thousands perhaps before but there was something special about them now listen carefully they thought they were sent as spies to do the job of reconnaissance for God but how many understand God wasn't looking for information how many believe God already knew everything about Jericho no he wasn't looking for information he was looking for a piece of trash that he could make into an instrument of mercy he was looking for someone who had faith in their heart and a glimmer of hope through which he could build his kingdom. He wasn't there for recon. He was there for a passionate rescue. He was looking for a woman who was willing to be something different than she'd been. He was looking for someone who was willing and waiting for an opportunity. He was looking for someone that he could make a channel through which he would send salvation into the world. These weren't spies. They were missionaries. Listen, they weren't spies. They were missionaries sent to find and rescue the future mother of Boaz. Remember Ruth's husband? Yeah, his mama. 
was Rahab. Boaz would be the dad of Obed, the grandfather of David, the daddy of Jesse. I'm going to read that one more time. They weren't spies. They were missionaries sent to find and rescue the future mother of Boaz, the grandmother or the future grandmother of Jesse and the future great-grandmother of David and the future great-great-great-grandmother many times removed of Jesus Christ. The Son of God. The beautiful instrument of redemption was made out of a piece of trash cast away by most. And certainly today if she was in this service, we would have steered clear of her and her gothic garb and strange dress. But she makes the famed hall of the faithful recorded in Hebrews chapter 11 where it says, By faith the harlot Rahab did not perish with those who did not believe when she received the spies in peace. James would write in his epistle that she was justified by her works that were expressions of her faith. Listen, today God has one word for everyone from the trash heaps of humanity God has one word for everyone who's come from the the, the brokenness of life, from the upper crust and the high and mighty or the down and out and the bottom of the ladder. That one word for you is Rahab. Rahab is the story of the gospel. Rahab was my story. If you're saved today, Rahab was your story. For our sermon today, she becomes the poster child and the mascot of our movement. Are you in the room with me today? You realize no matter what's happened in your life, God will make something powerful out of you. God will write you into his music. Drunkards and drug addicts and prostitutes and convicts and preachers and church mice and We all have a note to play. We all have music that God's composed for our lives. We've all been written into the story of the gospel. And in the worst of times, Jesus said, don't forget that the gospel's still good news and it shall be preached. Church, your job's not to be preoccupied with the end of time. Your church, your job is to preach the good news of Jesus Christ to every creature. To preach hope to the hopeless and help to the helpless. The story of Rahab emphatically tells us that you can be whole again. You may feel broken today. You can be clean again. You may feel dirty today. But the story of Rahab tells us that not only can you be brought into the family, you can become a pivotal player. Maybe you've been broken by your own weaknesses. Maybe you've spent a lifetime working your way to the bottom. But God sent me here this morning during this beginning service of Revive 2016 like the spies he sent to Jericho to reach for you today and to remind you that there is hope that comes to you packaged from the God of heaven. You have a mission. You have a purpose. You are an instrument in God's symphony of grace. Okay, so that's my introduction. <laughs> Three things that Rahab learned by what she experienced. Three things. Number one is you're never so far away from God that his love can't reach you. That's, that's the lessons that she learned and the lessons I want you to get today. If you've been saved five minutes, 50 years, or you've never accepted Jesus as your Savior, I want you to hear what I'm saying today, that you can't escape God's love. You can't go further than His love can reach. His love knows no limits, no boundaries, no barriers, no obstacles. His love is for everybody. It's the same for everyone. It is the true equality of the world. It's not found in religious status. It's not found in economic equality. It's not found in gender equality. It's found in spiritual equality where God makes you what he wants you to be. 
He will reach you through your hurt, through your hate, through your perversion, through your sin and suffering and make a beautiful instrument out of your life. Rahab learned that. Number two, Rahab learned that anyone can find a place of purpose in God's plan. God uses trash to make instruments of beautiful music. When people look at you, they may see an old used up piece of trash. But the maestro sees a violin that needs to be tuned. And the maestro sees a trumpet that if you put this piece on it and that piece on it, there's still hope for it. The maestro sees a drum that, that, that with the right, uh, the right adjustments could beat the rhythm of hope. Uh, the, the maestro sees a clarinet. Put yourself in his hands. It's amazing what his grace can do. Rahab learned that. Number three, Rahab learned that where you come from does not determine where God can take you. Rahab learned and reminds us that God will take you out of any kind of mess and put you in the lineage of a miracle. Never again will I read Matthew chapter 5 verses 5 and 6 again in those genealogies that so often we're bored with. When I read then, Salmon begot Boaz by Rahab, Boaz begat Obed by Ruth, and Obed begot Jesse, and Jesse begot David the king. The apostle Paul said, If any man be in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away, and behold... How many believe he doesn't just do it and can't just do it for your soul? He can do it for your marriage. He can do it for your finances. He can do it for your body. He can do it for anything that applies to you in your life. His hand is not short, nor is his power and passion limited that he cannot reach you where you are to do what you need and to bring a miracle in your life. So that's the personal application to this story. But finally, I see a picture of our situation today in the church. The Canaan and Canaanites of the 13th century B.C. were not so different than the world of the 21st century. Each city operated as a city-state like an independent nation, civil unrest, political turmoil, rampant sexual depravity, pagan idolatry. You know they murdered their children, sacrificing them on the altar of their own lust and convenience. Today we abort them and call it family planning. Not much is different. How many children had Rahab sacrificed? I don't know. In this particular story, from a church perspective, we see Joshua as a type of Jesus who is leading a movement into the promises of God and the establishment of a new kingdom. God knows that a purging is necessary, that the land must be cleansed. But yet in His providential sovereignty, God chose to send these two men as missionaries to reach this one woman in Jericho. The, 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 the spies represent believer missionaries who are sent into the world that is doomed for destruction. I don't want to be negative today and I don't want to be the bearer of bad news because this whole message is about good news. But this world and its system is doomed for destruction. Did you know Jericho, according to the scripture, was accursed and doomed for destruction? In Joshua chapter 6, that's how Joshua described it. When I go through all the things they were doing, how many know that it doesn't take long? You don't even have to leave the front page of the newspaper to realize that all the things they were doing is happening right now in this nation and around the world. When we see a picture of the church in this context, we see the church on the, on the eastern side of the Jordan River. We see Joshua, who is a type of Jesus, that is about to lead us into the promised land. And we see in the land of promise enemy occupants that are resisting and standing against everything that God stands for. But, but right in the middle of these situations... God says, this is the message and the mission of the church. I want you to reach for the Rahabs. Yes, destruction will come. Yes, the nation will rise against nation. Yes, there'll be offended people. 
Yes, there'll be every kind of cause under the sun and someone beating a drum in support of it. But this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached. You know why? Because there are Rahabs in the crowd that God says, she actually is my daughter. She just don't know it yet. They're actually, they're actually going to respond to the gospel. They just need a missionary who'll cross the river and be willing to penetrate the culture and get right up and close and personal with those and tell them the good news of Jesus Christ. The spies represent believer missionaries who were sent into the world that is doomed for destruction. Rahab represents a typical person who is a product of a fallen, depraved cultural system that would that that those that her king and through her he would establish his kingdom. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm praying for a Rahab revival. Yes, I want you all to be revived during this season of meetings. Yes, we want a refreshing, but we need more than just an occasional refreshing in this nation. We need the church to rise up and we need to see a Rahab revival where God sends us into this fallen culture with the good news. And you know that if we'll do that, he'll go with us. He promised that he would go with us. Stand with me, would you? What can the church learn from this story today? Number one, what I'm hearing in my heart is it's time for the church to cross over. It's time for the church to cross over. We've been peering into the the combat that's ahead of us too long. We've been in the wilderness too long. We have to find our voice again. We've tried to bring change through economics saying that if we could compete with the resources of the world, we could gain influence and it didn't work. We've tried to bring change through politics thinking that if we could gain political power that we could insist on holiness and righteousness in a fallen world and it hasn't worked. These things aren't bad. They're even necessary. But we have to find our voice again as a church and rise up and speak as the church. Our voice is established through the supernatural. Our power cannot be bought or bargained for. It's supernatural. Our currency medium is signs and wonders. Are y'all in the room with me? The people of Jericho were not impressed with Israel's organizational styles or their technological savvy. They were afraid of Israel because God had demonstrated his supernatural power. They were afraid because they were on the wrong side of a powerful living God. This has got to be the message of the church again. We've got to rise up with signs and wonders and miracles and the world has to see the church on fire by the power not of our technology, not of our just organizational abilities or our leadership styles. They've got to see Jesus alive among us. We have to get our voice back. Number two, we must not be afraid to reach for Rahab, the most messed up people in society. The gospel is not at its core message and about association. The gospel is at its core message about association, not isolation. These two missionaries were never, would have never reached and rescued Rahab if they hadn't have been in her house. Number three, we must not not put our hope in a system that is accursed or in other words is doomed for destruction. The only house, listen, and thank you for your patience, but the only house that was spared destruction was the house that was marked with the red cord of covenant. Rahab with her good intentions and her well-meaning plans, if she had not been obedient to the instructions of those two missionaries, she would have perished with the rest of the city. She was saved because the same cord she let them down with, she tied in the window. The window historically has always spoken of our witness. Rahab didn't just participate in a covenant. She witnessed to all of Israel that she had made that covenant 
and was standing in that covenant. As surely as Israel put the blood of the lamb over the doorpost on the first Passover, the same covenant power is what saved Rahab on that day of destruction where Israel had circled the city over a number of days, 13 times. And when the shout and the trumpet sounded, And the walls fell. All the walls fell except one house. And it was the house of Rahab the harlot who had put a red cord. It's the blood of Jesus, ladies and gentlemen, whether you're Baptist, Methodist, Presbyterian, Pentecostal, whatever you call yourself, whatever label you're in, there is just one covenant. No matter what you call yourself, there's just one covenant that will offer salvation in a city and a nation that is doomed. So let me ask you a question. If a couple of good men can make music out of trash in South America, what can the God of the universe make out of you? There's not a single person in this room today that has no hope for a better future. But that hope is found exclusively in one covenant that is ordained and authorized by Joshua. Or we could say Jesus. There is hope for you. There's hope for the church. Are y'all hearing me today? I I speak to those who listen to this CD or this DVD or, or listen to this message. There is one hope today, but there is hope. There's hope for every individual and there is hope for the church. Don't say, well, the church has had its better day. Its days are over. No, no. This gospel of the kingdom shall be preached. As long as that mandate is in force, God will empower his church. There's hope for the church. We stand today on the banks of invasion. We stand today as a church on the shores of a major move of God. Jericho's got to fall, but there are Rahabs that must be saved. That is the mission of the church, both invasion and evangelism. Will you bow your heads with me today?